You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Second Timothy, chapter 6, starting in verse 3 through 10. Let me read and then I'll pray. Paul says, teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. I want to ask a blessing on God's word before I preach. Father, um, I thank you so much for your word. Um, And Lord, I ask that you would come uh, in these moments as we study your word together, and I ask that you would come and do what is impossible for any of us to do, <coughs> and that is to affect any kind of um, change at the heart level for us. Father, I'm just acutely aware this morning of uh, our tendencies to wander away from you, to be distracted by different things in this life. So, Father, I pray that you would come now and speak through your word to us. Call us back from our wandering. Help us to rest um, in the truth of the gospel and the presence of Christ. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Pray said. Amen. Amen. Uh, two phrases in this passage that... Uh, caught my attention as I was studying it this week. Teach and urge these things, phrase one, at the beginning. And then some have wandered away from the faith, phrase two, towards the end. Teach and urge these things, some have wandered away from the faith. I think that those two phrases kind of act like bookends um, to to the whole passage, right? These verses, uh, verses 3 through 10, um, I think Paul is drawing our attention to something that he's continuously drawn our attention to throughout this letter. Um, He's consistently drawn our attention to the issues of false teachers and uh, shipwrecked believers, departed disciples. Now, um, here, I think he's drawing our uh, attention to wandering heretics. Um, he says, teach and urge these things. Why? I think he, he, he wants us to teach and urge these things um, because uh, the topic of people who apostatize or wander or turn away um, from the faith, it's an urgent matter. Something that uh, I, think, I think if we all take a moment to think about, it, it's, it's an urgent matter. It's an eternal matter, right? Chapter 1, if you were to go back and just do a quick survey, um, there's three other places in the scriptures that Paul draws our attention, at least in this letter to Timothy. And again, we know that Paul's writing this letter to Timothy, who's the young pastor of a church in Ephesus. And so as Paul writes this letter, he's thinking of a certain church and a certain community, and he's thinking of their pastor and their leaders and how they're going to lead. And, um, and this is one of the pressing issues. So I think that as Paul comes to the end of this letter, he's thinking, I need to nail this again. He's already done it a couple of times. You go back to chapter 1 in verses 3 through 11. You can take a glance back there. I'm not going to read through it, but I'll give you my summary. What Paul does there is he instructs Timothy 
um, to confront false teachers. And in his confrontation of them, he tells Timothy to instruct them not to teach any different doctrine. Um, He tells Timothy, instruct these guys not to be devoted to mythology or the study of endless genealogies. Why? Why would this be so important? Paul says the reason this is important is because to have those kinds of conversations, to be devoted to that kind of thing, again, mythology or the study of endless genealogies, to be devoted to that actually promotes something. It promotes a speculative kind of conversation rather than the stewardship of the gospel. This is what Paul says in uh, the first chapter. He, he literally tells Timothy that these false teachers have actually uh, swerved off the, the, the highway of, of gospel-centered doctrine down into the ditches of worthless discussion. They've done this because they desire to be seen as competent teachers, despite the fact, Paul says, these men know nothing about anything. So that's kind of a summary of the first stab that Paul takes at addressing the issue of false teaching, disciples who fall away, apostatize from the faith, those who wander, so on and so forth. Later on um, in chapter 1, again, he comes back to it in verses 18 through 20. And he basically tells Timothy, he's like, hey, yo, you need to go pick a fight with these guys. Um, Go pick a fight with these guys. And I think the way we caveated what he was talking about there is people who were shipwrecked believers. And he basically says, hey, go pick a fight with those guys and do it by anchoring your soul to an authentic faith on the one hand and a clean conscience on the other hand. Those were the two things that, that Paul talked about were really important. He, he warned Timothy that many believers had already done this. They'd already shipwrecked their faith because they had either unhitched or they had de-anchored. They pulled themselves away from uh, the historic teaching of the gospel, um, which in turn, um, if you remember, made uh, those shipwrecked believers, made their consciences just as fried as their filthy lifestyles were. So you might remember, one of my, I think, one of the phrases that, we, that I came up with during um, that sermon and that study was that a false faith makes your conscience filthy, and on the other hand, a filthy conscience fries your faith. That was a principle that we kind of wrestled with from that passage. The only hope, if you remember, the only hope for those shipwrecked believers, according to Paul, if you remember, he even named them. I think it's pretty wild. The only hope for those shipwrecked believers was to turn them over to Satan in hopes that they would taste the consequences of their sinful wandering and repent. Turn around. So then he kind of lays that topic down for a while, and then he comes back to it again in chapter 4. Old Joe preached chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, I think, while we were away. Um, Paul comes back to it in those first five verses. He says that some disciples will depart from the faith. Why would they depart from the faith? Text tells us that they would depart from the faith because of their devotion. They were devoted to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. That's a, that's a heavy thing. Like, to say that, man, the reason those people went out from us is because they're devoted to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. I, I mean, that's a heavy warning, too, for all of us to say, man, how easy could it be for you or I to be deceived and be actually devoted to, attached to um, a deceitful spirit or um, the teaching of a demon. He says that those departed disciples were actually insincere liars, that their consciences were burned beyond recognition to the extent that they even taught people um, to abstain from things that God doesn't even forbid. Things like, if I remember right, marriage and certain kinds of food. It was an asceticism, a looks-based kind of religion, a, a legalism. Make yourself look clean and pretty on the outside, um, even though the inside of you is rotting. Um, Paul basically said there, Joe taught this really well, 
that the only remedy for dealing with disciples who had departed like that is to actually protect ourselves. How do we protect ourselves? By knowing the gospel, treasuring the gospel, and protecting the gospel. And the way that you do that is by keeping your nose in God's word and your mind set on prayer and your heart full of gratitude towards our Father in heaven who has given us far more than we deserve. Um, So, that's a quick summary of all the things that Paul has said just in this letter in regards to these kinds of things. He's He's not missed a beat at all when it comes to giving straightforward warnings and really precise kind of in-your-face instructions regarding false teachers, shipwrecked believers, and departed disciples. But he, uh, again, sees now as he's coming to the end of his letter that it must be important to address the topic again, a serious thing. So, as he does this, uh, I think he's drawing our attention just in a little bit different way, um, to people who have now apostatized, have wandered away. Um, my, my, uh, um, my summary of that is that these people have become wandering heretics. Part of it's just because I love the word heretic. Um, I don't know why. It's some sort of sick infatuation, I suppose. But um, you've got to ask yourself the question, what is a wandering heretic, and how would you know if you met one? How would you know? What is one, and how would you know if you met one? And how would you know if you were in danger of becoming one? A wandering heretic. Would you know? Maybe another question, too, would be, like, what is the remedy? Um, Is there any hope for somebody who gets into that place? Um, What I'm going to do is as we take a walk through this, I want to outline basically five ways that I think you and I would know if we were facing a wandering heretic either across the table from us or in the mirror in the morning. So five things. I'm going to quickly tell you where we're headed, and then we're going to head there, okay? Um, What I see here in the passage is that a wandering heretic, number one, does not teach sound doctrine, okay? Um, He has a very sick character. Uh, wherever he goes, he produces uh, spiritual corruption. Um, number four, he, he believes that godliness is a means of gain. And then number five, he doesn't believe that greed leads to loss. So those are the five places we're going to go over the next few moments. And then at the end, try to wrap it up with some practical application. So number one, a, a wandering heretic doesn't teach sound doctrine. Okay, I want to show you where I find this. Verse 3, the passage we just read, Paul says that a wandering heretic is anyone who teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. So, so what I think is I think that Paul knew who these heretics were. And Christ was not at the center of their teaching, nor was he at the center of their character Uh, which then led to absolute corruption in their ministry. The teaching of Jesus in these men's lives had been marginalized, pushed to the side by their asceticism, by their legalism, by their Gnosticism, their sensualism, right? They had taken the teachings of Jesus and made it sensual, something that just feels really good to you. They They didn't teach godliness, They taught foolishness that led to outright heresy and a rejection of the gospel. These heretics did not teach sound doctrine. They they taught things that actually contradicted the plain teaching of the scriptures. And this still happens all over the church today. And it doesn't just happen in churches out there. We, We are in danger of that happening in our church right here. All throughout the centuries, wandering heretics have taught what ought not to be taught, okay? They normalize sin, number one. Normalize it. Uh, They sensualize the gospel, make it into a feel-good activity. They demonize godliness. They call what is right bad, and they call what is wrong good. 
So they demonize godliness and they minimize what is good, right, pure, and true. So a wandering heretic doesn't teach sound doctrine. Number two, a wandering heretic has a sick character. A wandering heretic has a very sick character. Verse 4, where I get it, Paul says that a wandering heretic is puffed up. You think about that image of something that is puffed up like a big fat pimple on your face. There. A wandering heretic is puffed up with what? Something really gross. Conceit and a lack of understanding. He actually understands nothing is what the way Paul puts it. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarreling about words. So um, one commentator said that uh, these wandering heretics were literally pompous ignoramuses. And they had a sick craving for things that made them sick. They had a sick character. They were like a rotting festering wound on the body of Christ. They refused to submit and to be healed by the gospel. Why? Because they rejected the gospel. They were like tiny little infections that were full of pus and poison. Their character was not full of the fruit of the Spirit. Their character was actually full of the poisonous um, pus of um, of selfishness and, and conceit and foolishness. They, they weren't known for love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. They weren't known for that. They were known for their sick cravings for controversial and quarrelsome conversations about anything and everything that would then deceptively undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ. They did not possess the character of Christ. They possessed the sick character of their sick charades. So a wandering heretic has a sick character. Number three, a wandering heretic produces spiritual corruption think about that but that's the product of their life spiritual corruption i get this from verses four through five paul says that a wandering heretic engages in conversations and teachings that produce what produce envy and dissension slander and evil suspicions and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth not just you pause for a second just say, like, I would have never chose this passage to preach on a Sunday morning if it weren't for the fact that it just falls right in line with what's next. This is what I love about um, expositional preaching verse by verse and word for word. Um, and it's also something that I just absolutely detest at the same time. Um, because who wants to preach a heavy message like this on a Sunday morning? Um, and like the last three weeks in a row, too, if I'm not incorrect. Um, but thank Jesus, thank our Father in heaven for um, what he knows that we don't know. My only guess is, is that my heart needs to hear these warnings week in and week out so I don't go here, right? These wandering heretics here on point three that produce spiritual corruption, um, these guys are becoming known. They, they were known for being settled or sitting in their decay. They were known for their rotting minds. That's what they were known for. They're like dead corpses with lipstick on, pretending to be something that they aren't. The fruit that was being produced through their lives, through their ministries, was spiritual corruption, not spiritual health. According to one author, this is a heavy statement. The symbol of the church was becoming not the cross, but a mushroom cloud of controversy and corrupted conversations. Apply that today to us, to the church. That the symbol of we as a church could easily become not the cross, but a mushroom cloud of controversy and corruptible conversations. 
You look back at verses 4 through 5, you pick this apart. There are, there are seven points of corruption um, in what I just read. Um, and, and the first five of those seven points are what I believe to be points of congregational corruption, meaning that as a church family as a whole, this is the fruit that you see in that church family's life. Um, and the last two points, I believe, are very you're still going to see in the congregation, but are much more personal on an individual basis. Um, so it's kind of like Paul argues from uh, the greater to the lesser, maybe. Um, um, let's follow it this way. Um, if you think about <coughs> you think about um, uh, the things that Paul says here in verses four through five. Um, if you were to see a congregation that had a bunch of wandering heretics running up and down its hallways, preaching from the pulpit, helping to do music, helping to take offering on a Sunday, teaching the kids in kids' church, running our nurseries, taking care of the yard outside. If we had a bunch of wandering heretics that were part of our church family, you would see envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. What does that look like? If you were to see those five fruits bowling up in a church family, well, a church family, I think, that is full of envy is a family that is constantly jealous of what others have. Constantly. Can't get over it. Just jealous of what others have. Can't stand the fact that they have a better truck than I do. Can't stand the fact that that person's married and I'm not. Can't stand the fact that they got kids and I don't. Can't stand the fact that they wear those kind of clothes and I don't get it. Just constantly envious of what others have. Can't get off of that. Church family that is full of dissension argues divisively about every new social fad that comes across their social media feeds. Fighting and arguing, infighting, is what would then characterize us as a church family if this is what we become. Church family that is infected with the fruit of slander constantly questions, constantly mischaracterizes other people. Why? Because they're in their attempt to get ahead or to win a fight. We mischaracterize. We talk trash. We say hurtful things about people that are not true. See, gossip is saying true things about somebody behind their back in, in an effort to make them look bad. Slander is saying untrue things about someone behind their back to make them look bad. <clears throat> I want to turn, can you turn my mic down just a little bit? I, there's a squeal, just a tiny bit. Thank you. Better. Um, think about a church family that is uh, full of evil suspicions. If we have a church family that is full of evil suspicions, then, then we become too enamored with our own judgmental attitude towards anyone who doesn't fit inside of our little sandbox. Can't play with me in my sandbox. Go play in your own. Find somebody else, right? And then what happens is you get a church family, they all just look alike. They're all homeschoolers. Amen. <laughs> They're all ex-addicts, right? They're all single young folks. <clears throat> They're all families with seven kids or more. Um, they all wear vests. I don't know. They all love to smoke cigars, whatever it is. Like, you just get this church family, they all look alike because it just becomes this little club, this little country club, like, just love hanging out with each other because we're so much the same that we, we, just, we just love each other so much. We don't like people that are different than us. Like, that's, that's part of the fruit there. But finally, then, I think if you, you see a church family that is um, um, full of constant friction, that's, uh, <coughs> that's pretty easy, right? Just constantly fighting, infighting back and forth. Man, I don't really like that person very much because we don't get along, so we're just going to. Every time we get around each other, there's just this friction happening. Now, there's some healthy friction that is good for us, like sandpaper that kind of smooths out some rough edges on each other. That's why old Joe and young Joe do well together. I'm not a homeschooler. He is a homeschooler. Actually, I was homeschooled as a kid, so we could quit arguing about that. The two of us don't have a, the two of us don't have a whole bunch of friction. Oh, we're different, so we rub on each other. Um, and the same would go for all of us around this room. So I think what you want to see in a church family is the character of gospel-centered peace 
spirit-filled unity, not constant infighting and friction and just all frustrated with each other. But that is the fruit you would see if we have um, wandering heretics up and down our halls. And that's not all, right? After Paul lists those five points of congregational corruption um, that's produced by these guys, he lists two points of personal fruits of corruption. He says basically that a congregation as wandering heretics running rampant throughout its hallways, is going to produce a certain kind of disciple. What kind of a disciple is that ministry going to produce? The kind of disciple who is, one, depraved in mind, and number two, is deprived of the truth. So you think of those two fruits, okay? If each of us as individual disciples have depraved minds, and we are deprived of the truth, then all those other five fruits in the family is what's going to come out of it. So if you want to do some good heart root work inside of you, um, this might be a good place to start. Like start asking yourself questions like, man, where is my mind just stinking depraved right now? Like, Where have I deprived myself of the nutritious truth of the gospel that I need? How have I done that? See, a person with a depraved mind basically takes the plain teaching of the scriptures regarding sin and salvation and what this person with a depraved mind does is they they twist it into some kind of a grotesque object for their own personal advancement right their own gain Uh, they they minimize their own sin oh it's not that bad Uh, they make things acceptable that god actually plainly says is unacceptable It kind of explained away, like, well, you know, we're all sinners, so it's not a big deal that I just slept with that chick last night, even though we're not married. Right? We hear this today. And we hear Christians saying things like this, quote, unquote, right? Minimizing, making things acceptable that God plainly says is unacceptable. Um, And then what happens from there is uh, we begin to construct new ways of salvation, such as legalism do all these things right on the outside, now start hiding all the bad things that you're doing behind closed doors. Um, So we construct new ways of salvation like legalism or or socialism, like get on the social bandwagon, right? Um, Or uh, centralism, again, back to got to feel good. Like I love the fact that we got lights that go up and down. Everybody will tell you like I'm really particular about the way that is because I I just have this weird bone inside my body that, Things have got to be straight. Even right now, my pulpit's not straight with the fans, which is off-centered from the center, driving me crazy. So I, I do like the way things feel, definitely. Like it drives me nuts if the tablecloths are dirty and not straightened out, so on and so forth. It's good to um, do things with excellence, for sure. Um, but it's very easy for us to make our relationship with God and our part in the church family all about the way it feels, right? Got to feel good. I just short, quick bunny trail because you know I love bunny trails. Like uh, Christy and I were talking about this article uh, that, that we reposted on Facebook about real men in the Bible. Um, did, did did you know that Moses, when he came down from the mountainside and broke the tablets of God because he was so angry that the people of God would um, worship that golden calf? Did you know that he like took the golden calf, melted down, and made him drink it? What? Uh, did you know there was another priest named Phineas who um, got up out of the congregation on a Sunday morning? filled with a holy righteous anger, like took a spear and killed a couple who was having sex outside of wedlock. Did you know that? Those are men in the scripture. Those are pastors in the scriptures. Why am I making this point? What? No, not a, no, I don't have a, I do, I do have a sword in my office, but no, no, not that kind of uh uh-oh. I mean, (laughs) no. Point being, um, the family of God is not all about feeling good. These guys had turned it into something that was all about feeling, sensualism, right? Maybe spiritualism. May, maybe it was about capitalism. Got lots of churches today. They're all about capital. We talked about money today. You know how easy it would be for us to like turn this corner and have it be all about the almighty dollar and how much we bring in and then cloak it in some weird religious jargon like, look how many churches we're helping to plant. There's guys that have been doing that for years that are now disqualified from ministry, right? So um, there's lots of ways we could easily 
turn in the wrong direction. How about nationalism? Like, I know that's hard. Like, we're in America. I get it, guys. I'm American as you are. I've got an American flag in my garage. But how easy is it for the church to turn all of what we do as a church into some weird, like, everything spiritually is connected to somehow to America, right? Careful about that too, right? So I think there's ways that this could happen. And, and, and if you go back to this text, the reason that these wandering heretics were doing this was simply because they didn't have the truth. They were deprived of the tr- truth. They were depraved in their minds. They had rejected Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Now listen, I'm sure that you could sit down with these guys in a coffee shop or a brewery or wherever. They could talk about Jesus when they had to. Sunday mornings, gospel communities, right? They could talk about Jesus when they had to. But the reality is they didn't know him intimately. There was not a vital relationship with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, whereby they walked with him and talked with him much like Moses or Abraham from the Old Testament or others that we see in the New Testament. That vital relationship was not there for these men. What was the outcome of that? The outcome of that is that they didn't know him. The outcome of that is that they, they, they said that what they did was they actually sowed spiritual corruption into the church family, and they infected other disciples with their spiritual sickness. So a wandering heretic produces spiritual corruption. Number four, fourth mark that I see here, the wandering heretic believes that godliness is a means of gain. Verses five through eight. Wandering heretic believes that godliness is a means of gain. Paul says that a wandering heretic in the Ephesian church um, was actually going from bad to worse. wasn't getting better, was getting worse because these people had imagined that godliness is a means of gain. According to one author, uh, he said that the fleece had become more important than the flock. In other words, the paycheck for these leaders was more important than the care of that flock of people. In fact, he even moves on to say that most likely fleecing the flock or the size of the paycheck for that leader, that pastor, those leaders who are falling away, the size of their paycheck um, was becoming actually the measure of professional competence. Think about that. Like In the world, it makes sense, Right? And uh, in the church, that was what was happening most likely. Happens all the time today too. Paul responds to that atrocity in verses 7 through 8 by saying what? He says that godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So the kind of gain that the Bible talks about all throughout the Bible is spiritual gain, not financial gain, not material gain, not relational gain, spiritual gain. And and, and godly contentment, that's true gain. You think about this, real contentment and then um, physical or material or relational prosperity, they don't go in the same category, biblically. Contentment has... Nothing to do with your circumstances. And in fact, contentment is most likely always there despite the circumstances. That's real contentment. It's the kind of contentment we see in the Bible. Paul, Paul underscores those truths by reminding us that basically that birth and death Those are the bookends to physical and material, earthly, worldly gain. All the things that you and I can gain in this life that aren't necessarily bad or wrong, there's a beginning and an end to it. Birth and death. Can't take it with you when you go. The reality in all of this is that greed for the Christian makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. That's why it doesn't make any sense to me when I hear about pastors making millions of dollars a year. It doesn't make any sense. I don't get it. Millions. It makes no sense because we we claim to have everything we need in the cross and the resurrection and the ascension and the promised return of Jesus. 
We promise to have everything, we claim to have everything in that message of the gospel. The question is, is, is Jesus really enough? Does your life prove that Jesus is enough? I tell you, there, there are many seasons and times of my life where I'm fighting like every ounce inside of me to hold on to that truth. See, this kind of truth is what leads Job in the Old Testament to say, naked I came from my mother's wound, and naked, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. This is on the day that Job lost everything of earthly value. Kids, home, business, bank accounts, wiped out in the blink of an eye. This kind of truth this personal knowledge of the goodness of our Heavenly Father. This is what led the Apostle Paul to say elsewhere in Philippians, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he goes on and lists a ton of different kinds of circumstances, right? Naked, clothed, fed, hungry, shipwrecked, not shipwrecked, and the list goes on. Tail end of that, he says, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Meaning that I can be content in whatever circumstance I am facing, not in my own strength, because in my own strength, Paul is saying, I can't do that. But when there is contentment in me, I know it's happening by the very Spirit of the living God living His life through me. See, a wandering heretic can't say those things. A wandering heretic believes that godliness is a means of gain. Finally, number five, a wandering heretic does not believe that greed leads to loss. Does not believe that greed leads to loss. Verses 9-10, through 10, Paul says that wandering heretics are people who desire to be rich and fall into temptation, into a snare, many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. This is a fun passage to preach when you're asking people for money. Because you can sure use it well. And I've preached this passage in terms of how to handle our money. Many people learn the price of everything only as they lose what is most valuable. You don't really know what you have until you lose it sometimes. That's the point. For a wandering heretic, the things that once were unthinkable in their life um, has now become natural and desirable. I think this is okay. Hardened their heart against the things of the Lord. Wandering heretics are the wannabe rich, Paul says, and they impale themselves. Literally like jump off a building and impale yourself on something. They impale themselves upon grief, upon grief, upon grief. In what? Their greedy pursuit of financial and material gain. And one author says that these kinds of leaders are the leaders who move up and out of the faith because of their greed and their lack of contentment in Christ. These wandering heretics have fallen into the temptation of the greedy pursuit of what they do not have. They are caught in a trap of the devil and they cannot get out. They do senseless things. Like you're looking at them and you're like, senseless. Why would you do that? Like you're looking from the outside in, you're like, how how did they get there? Right? Like that's somebody that I know used to know better, but they're doing the very thing that I know they know better to do. How did they get there? Why would they do something so senseless and stupid? Foolish, right? <coughs> For instance, <clears throat> one of my long struggles is lust. I've often warred against having certain things on your cell phone that would get you into places where you might be tempted to lust. So after preaching that for so long, can you imagine if I were to show up next week with all sorts of social media junk on my phone? Wouldn't that be a red flag for you that, oh crap, Joe's like, something's happening in Joe's life, something's not right. Well, I could dress it up in, in, in good Christian language and be like, nah, I'm okay. You guys have heard this from me before. Right? You could take this and you could spin it anywhere. <coughs> if I struggle with drunkenness, I just start going to the bar alone on Friday nights without my wife to keep an eye on me or a good friend to hold me accountable. 
that would be a very good red flag for you to come and start pounding on me, right? These leaders were ignoring those things. They were doing things that were senseless, stupid, because they were caught in the trap of a devil and they could not get out. Their destructive desires deep down inside them were out of control. Their hearts and their lives had taken a deep plunge into the filthy waters of ruin and destruction. And in this case, Paul says they loved money more than they loved God. They loved money more than they loved his church. Therefore, their lives were characterized by all kinds of evils. Their unrestrained cravings had driven them mad. They had wandered off the trusted path of a gospel-centered life to the ditches of a self-delusional or greed-filled, self-advancing kind of a life. These are heavy warnings to us. Wandering heretic doesn't believe that greed leads to loss. So, said all of this in 40 minutes, five minutes left to make some application in a way that doesn't leave us all like, crap, I just got pinned to the floor by Joe's sword. There's cups of gold out there to drink. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, it was a... We've learned this. A wandering heretic doesn't teach sound doctrine, has a sick character, produces spiritual corruption, believes that godliness is a means of gain, doesn't believe that greed leads to loss. Easy to look outward, see all that in the American church today. Our wandering heretics seem to abound everywhere we look throughout history. Much harder to take a cold hard look at ourselves. Um, as I thought through these passages this week, I wanted to uh, um, try to make some application in a way that would <clears throat> at least... Uh, give you an invitation and maybe a thirst and a hunger to do the same. So here were some of the questions. Uh, number one, where have I begun to minimize sin and reconstruct the path of salvation? Uh, for, for those of you that are in a gospel community that's still meeting, I think, on Wednesdays, there's no gospel community notes coming out, so you should write these questions down and use these questions for your conversation. Number one, where have I begun to minimize sin and then reconstruct the path of salvation? See, my, my heart in answer to this question, my heart is far too prone to minimize sin in my own life and then even in the lives of the people that I care about and try to lead. Like, I desire acceptance from people, so I am prone to live in silent fear. Comfort becomes my security. Self-protection becomes my savior. I mean, even as I confess that and think about that, I'm reminded of this. Jesus is clear about sin. Constantly meeting sinners, not glossing over like, oh, it's okay, you're a sinner. I expect you to do that. I'll give you a pass. That's not Jesus. He's like, hey, woman, you have seven freaking husbands. <laughs> Go and sin no more to the woman at the well. Jesus is very clear about sin. Very clear. He unflinchingly confronts sin. And in my heart, continues to do that. At the same time, he does that while he compassionately gives himself away in death at the cross for me. Like, my thought is like, what a beautiful Savior I have in Christ and that you have in Christ if you're following him, that he would actually die for wandering heretics. That doesn't give me a motivation to go back out there and do some more sin. That gives me a motivation to like walk out and be like Jesus. I want to honor him. But number two, question number two, in what ways is my life characterized by ungodliness? Uh, the truth be told, my character is weak and worthless without Christ. My life before Christ is off the rails. Without him, if I were to take all the fruits of the Spirit and turn them around backwards, here's what my life looks like without Christ. I'm an unloving person, I'm full of despair, I'm overflowing with anxiety, I'm impatient, I'm not kind, I'm prone to evil thoughts and desires, I'm unfaithful, I'm harsh, and I am controlled not by the Spirit of God, but by my out-of-control desires. That's what my life looks like. My character looks like that without Christ. 
but because I've trusted in Christ and I know that there is therefore now no condemnation for me, I'm being transformed by the renewing of my mind as I put on the mind of Christ and I'm taking every thought captive to the word of Christ. I'm not a worthless wandering heretic. I'm a priceless adopted child of God. Don't get me wrong, I have my days. I have my days. That's, that's where I need you. That's where we need each other. Hey, hey, like that's not loving. Hey, like, where's the joy in your life? Why, why are you in conflict with that person rather than living in peace with them? Because that's the fruit of the Spirit. Let's, let's talk. Let's get in each other's faces a little bit, right? That's why we need each other. That's why the church exists today. It's to see the, the, the character of Christ formed in not just me, but in us through one another. So the cross of Christ needs to so captivate our hearts and our minds that we would now live for a Savior who gave himself for all of us who are recovering, wandering heretics. Question number three, where, where do I see spiritual corruption taking root in my heart? Is there any evidence of envy or dissension or slander or evil suspicions or constant friction or depravity of mind or deprivation of the truth in my heart? I'll be really honest. Far too easy for me to give in to envy when I hear of a dude just starting out in the ministry making $20,000 more per year in salary than I do. Like, I don't even want to hear those stories anymore. I, I, I just don't even want to hear it. It drives me batty. The kind of envy that I struggle with in that moment is unreal. Not even just in that moment, in the moments that follow. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money more, okay? I've been doing ministry for about 13 years, vocationally. So I just work you through the process real quick. And I think, well, a dude who's starting in the same role that I'm in, day one, making $20,000 more. How does that work? I'm not saying he shouldn't. Just saying I struggle. What happens then in that process is I'm reminded by the Spirit of the living God, because I wouldn't naturally remind myself of this, I would do what everybody else does. I would go find a job that pays better. Okay? I'm reminded in those moments by the Spirit of the living God that I serve Him who gave away everything so that I could have the only thing that's actually worth having. And that's Jesus Christ Himself. There's nothing else worth having in this life because I can't take it with me. I will not be dominated by envy or dissension or slander or evil suspicion or constant friction or depravity of mind or deprivation of the truth. Though I struggle with them, I will not be dominated by them. I will not be controlled by them because I have the Spirit of God inside of me. Question number four, how have I begun to see the church family as a place of consumption rather than a bride to contribute to? How have I begun to see the church family as a place of consumption rather than a bride to contribute to? See, I already dealt with the money side of greed in the last question. Here's the question. Aren't there, aren't there a ton of other things that we get greedy to have that we think we could gain from the church when we begin to see the church like something that we consume rather than contribute to? Things like popularity or influence or power or friendship. How many of you want friends? All of us. Don't need to be the only one raising my hand, right? We all want friends. How often do you know that we all try joining up in a church because we're looking for friends? And then we're guilty turning into a country club, right? Not a wrong desire. And the byproduct of being part of church is this. You're probably going to have some friends, right? So not a bad thing. But when that becomes the driving force behind why I would be part of a church, I mean, wouldn't we all be really deceived if we sat here and just said, no, those, those desires don't exist in us. I mean, that's the, that's the epitome of greed in this passage is to be that deceived and enslaved by it that you don't even know. So I am, I am very thankful. Um, I'm very thankful that Jesus gave himself away on behalf of the bride of Christ and that he poured himself out on that cross on behalf of wandering heretics like you and I. Uh, question number five, and then we're out. Where has my heart become shackled in the snare of greed? Where has my heart become shackled 
in the snare of greed. So knowing that I have been set free from the snare of greed is one thing. Uh, it's an entirely, completely different thing uh, to walk in that newfound freedom, right? Like, like when I find myself comparing myself with others, or when I find myself competing with others, when I find myself being envious of, of others, uh, then what happens then is I know that I need to, to once again apply the gospel of Jesus Christ to my heart, get up out of my self-made cage, walk in the freedom that I have in Christ. You think about the message of the gospel, right? Applying the gospel in these moments reminds us that Jesus' blood washes my stains away, my sin stains. His broken body pays the price for my war crimes against him. Jesus' resurrection fills me with his victory over Satan's sin in the grave. Jesus' ascension when he went back to heaven after the resurrection reminds you and I that he is the only king forever. And no matter how many times I try to put myself in his throne and be in control, it doesn't change the fact that he is in control. And then when my life feels like it's out of control because things are just going cattywampus, I can trust that he is in control because Jesus ascended back to heaven and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's a king. And he's returning one day. That's a, that's a piece of the gospel message too. That promise of Christ's return to take us to heaven, a place where there is no more mourning, no more tears, no more crying, no more sin, no more brokenness. That's called the hope of heaven. That's the promised land in the Old Testament. That's the place that you and I are headed. It's what completely kills all greed inside of us. It's the truth that there is no hope in anything here and now. Our hope is in the future place called heaven. So in conclusion, um, greedy false teachers abound. Shipwrecked believers litter the sides of the oceans of grace in the sand. Departed disciples, honestly, oftentimes haunt the hallways of my heart. I feel like there's wandering heretics everywhere I look. Um, I used to be one of them. Sometimes I still struggle with acting like one of them. The promise of this passage is this. Godliness with contentment is great gain. It's the one promise that you can take away from this passage as a believer. Godliness with contentment is great gain. The Lord Jesus Christ is all I need, and in him I will be content. And I pray that that's what you'll find too. There was one other author that said something like this, that if I keep Christ at the center of the Bible, and I keep Christ at the center of history, and I keep Christ at the center of salvation, and I keep Christ at the center of my life, then I have gained everything. So I close with this. In Christ alone, I shall be content. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that your spirit would continue to be with us as we close. In Jesus' name. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.